What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? My guest today is Old Testament scholar Carmen Imes on Outpost Theology. Carmen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Could you give us, we're going to get into your book. You've just written a new book and it's out through IVP Academic, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. But before we get to your book, would you mind giving us just a thumbnail sketch of where you're from and your faith journey? Sure. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Um, Fast forwarding to the end of the story, I teach in Canada and discovered in my application process that I was a dual citizen. Um, So I've lived in both countries. Um, But maybe an interesting way of telling my story would be to highlight the denominational history that I have. I don't think I've talked about that on other interviews. Um, So I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, and when I was in junior high, we went through sort of a spiritual awakening process as a family and began attending a charismatic church. For a while, we were attending them at the same time, which was a bit discombobulating, but um, (laughs) nevertheless, we were trying to make sense of the world we were coming from and the world we were feeling drawn into. So we, for a while, we attended both, and then after a while, it just didn't work to do that anymore. So we, we stuck with the charismatic church. That church uh, closed in, because of a series of unfortunate events. We found a four-square church to join after that. So through my high school years, I was in four-square church, headed off to Bible college at Multnomah Bible College, which at the time was just coming out of a dispensational heritage. Um, there were no more hardline dispensationalists there, but, um, but probably prog- progressive dispensationalists would describe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the views of most of the faculty. Uh, I attended a Baptist church there, and then over the years have been part of Mennonite, non-denominational, United Methodist, Evangelical Free, uh, and I'm trying to think if I'm missing a church. I I think that covers basically the churches I've attended in the meantime. Uh I think deep down inside I'm probably Anglican, but I haven't had a great opportunity to be part of an Anglican (laughs) church. So... I, I like to think of myself as a theological mutt. I've been in yeah. a lot of different church traditions, so hopefully that makes my writing um, communicate in wider circles than it, than they would otherwise. Yeah. I would say it was my freshman year of college that I went through a personal process of self-discovery. I went to college expecting that I was training for missions. I wanted to be a Bible translator. But during my freshman year, I took a course in how to teach and at the same time, of course, in how to study the Bible. And they both just lit up my world. And I mm. realized that I that I really, really wanted an opportunity to teach. This this sounded really fun to me. And then that year, two opportunities opened for me. One was uh, working as a lab instructor for Bible study methods under Ray Lubeck mm-hmm. at Multnomah. So I had a chance to teach Bible study methods to freshmen. I was Mm -hmm. barely older than most of them, younger than many of them. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was an opportunity to begin, you know, stepping into a new a new role, a new career possibility. Uh, That same year, I contacted my pastor from my home church in Colorado, which was Foursquare. And I said, oh, I'm learning so much this year. I would love to do an adult Sunday school class over the summer and pass along some of what I've been learning. And I was in a a course with Ray Lubeck at the time on understanding worldviews. And I thought I would just love to pass this information along to my church. And the pastor not only let me do it, 
but he required all of the elders and their wives and the ministry <laughs> leaders of our church to attend it. So it was uh -huh. it was a small church. So it was probably a dozen people who were in my class, but it was all the church's leaders. And I was investing in them as my 18 year old self. <laughs> and mm -hmm. what an amazing opportunity that was, again, just to sort of try out my wings. And yeah. and I saw like this is what I was born to do. I love teaching. Yeah. I love helping people make connections, helping people put into practice what they're learning. And so both of those experiences, I would say, put me on a trajectory towards academics. Uh, mm -hmm. I discovered at some point that if I wanted to keep doing this, I needed more degrees. And so eventually mm -hmm. ended up going to Gordon-Conwell Seminary for my master's and then Wheaton College for my PhD. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And, and you're currently at... Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. And I have a confession mm -hmm. as someone from Oklahoma. Yeah. I had to Google. I had to get on Google Maps. <laughs> and I'm not proud of this as an <laughs> academic to figure out where exactly in Canada Alberta is. You are not alone. And I, I did find it. So, yes. So we're like north of Montana, sort of the western mm -hmm. Montana. And so... Portland is home for my husband. That's where most of our extended family lives. So, so we're about a 14-hour drive from Portland. If you go like towards from Portland, if you go towards the northeast for 14 hours through the, the top of Idaho, you end up in Three Hills. Okay. Yeah. Well, if I am ever in the neighborhood, <laughs> I will look you up. I haven't been there yet. You will so. never be in the neighborhood unless you're coming to Prairie <laughs> College. We're in a small town, about 3,400 people. And we're surrounded on all sides by wheat fields and canola fields. Uh, we have our own grocery store. Uh -huh. um, we have we have a, a number of things in our town that makes it very livable. We love living here, but um, it's not the sort of place you tend to pass through unless you mean to. That's well. We're recording this the day after Easter, and currently we're in the midst of this global pandemic. Yes. So. There have been a few times where I have thought maybe Alberta would be the safest place as I was looking up your bio from the whole, you know, <laughs> it'll take a while for it to get up there. Social maybe. isolation is pretty easy where we live <laughs> because there just aren't that many crowded areas. Uh, I'm noticing that the, the pandemic is spreading more slowly in Alberta. And I think part uh -huh. of that is just because of how spread out we are. We have, yeah. we have like three and a half million people in Alberta. And Alberta mm. is huge. Like you could drive, yeah. I think, for more than 14 hours from the southern border to wow. the northern border. You're still driving and you're still in Alberta. So it's a huge area, but not a lot of people. And you were doing social distancing then before it was ever cool <laughs> for the rest of us. And it... Yes, I guess you could say that. Well, I have this theory that Old Testament scholars, that, that now they're sort of like tigers, but also like human beings. And, th and that is, you don't encounter them a lot in the wild. <laughs> they're, they're a rare entity. And so I'm, oh, I've been super excited to talk to a real life uh, Old Testament scholar. Oh, and I, I'm also a teaching pastor. I'm a, a theology professor. But um, one of the questions I, had, I wanted to ask you is, why do you think pastors... A lot of pastors avoid teaching or preaching on the Old Testament. It's hard work. It's a completely cross-cultural experience. There are so many metaphors, images, cultural practices that are foreign to us. And so mm -hmm. it takes a lot of work to, to uncover what those are 
and how they work and then to go through the work for your congregation of connecting that to Jesus and you know mm-hmm. what does this mean after the cross and the resurrection the ascension of Jesus like how does that how does it still come into play so i think it's a lot of work um and i think part of it is the the venue of a sermon which tends to be you know 20 to 40 minutes long doesn't allow mm-hmm. a lot of time to paint that historical backdrop that's essential an essential part of understanding the stories and what they're for um mm-hmm. so i think that's part of it yeah well i think you know for a lot of modern people especially if they're unchurched or dechurched mm-hmm. just the gap between the first century the new testament and today seems like a big yep. gap and then so to add on to that however many more years um, and different cultures and different contexts for some pastors i feel like it is challenging Mm -hmm. you know and i i have a friend um named sarah and she's an old testament professor and she she often preaches at churches and she says usually when she shows up uh, or when she starts to communicate with the pastor the pastor will say would you mind preaching from the old testament not just because it's her specialty or her area of expertise because quote it's been a while uh, yeah, in, the, yeah. in the church. And so one of the things I loved about your book uh, and Bearing God's Name was it's, it's not just a book about uh, some debate amongst academics in the Old Testament, but it, the subtitle is Why Sinai Still Matters. Mm-hmm. Why um, the covenant that we encounter at Sinai and the interaction between God and Moses and the Israelites, it's not just this dead thing that happened way back there but it's alive and relevant for us today. And so I wanted to, I think maybe the best entry point is through this commandment, uh, the commandment that you sort of center in on. And most Christians have heard of the commandment and depending on your translation, you know, it might be different, but sort of the old Kings, King James, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. And for a lot of us, and you, you mentioned it in the book, that just kind of meant don't cuss <laughs> or especially don't cuss with uh, Jesus or, or the name of God or, mm-hmm. or even like the sort of add on evangelical curse words like golly and jeesh and uh, all of those. Yep. Those were, those were forbidden in my house. Mm-hmm. We couldn't say jeepers, jeepers or anything. Oh. Um, so you're kind of challenging kind of our traditional reading of that commandment. Um, not that you're in favor of cussing or, or taking <laughs> or misusing the Lord's name, but how are you uh, challenging kind of our traditional understanding of, of what that, that commandment means? Yeah, I would say the command is actually much, much broader than speech. And most, mm. most interpreters throughout history have thought this is prohibiting the speech speech of like speaking God's name in a particular context. Um, Mm -hmm. And as you've already explained, most of us think of that as using God's name flippantly as a swear word or a cuss word. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew verse that's been translated in English is you shall not take the Lord's name in vain actually says you shall not bear Yahweh's name Mm -hmm. in vain. And so in Mm -hmm. my doctoral dissertation at Wheaton, I investigated what might it mean if we didn't take that as a metaphor for speech or a a short short form of talking about the way we speak God's name. What if it actually means 
what it says? What if it means that we shouldn't Mm -hmm. carry God's name in vain? Is there a way in which we are carrying God's name? And I didn't have far to look. Right there at Mm -hmm. Sinai are the instructions to the high priest, actually Mm -hmm. the instructions to Moses for how to construct the garments of the high priest. And the high priest, Aaron, is to wear on his body the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, as well Mm -hmm. as the name of Yahweh on his forehead to indicate that he represents Yahweh to the people and he represents the people to Yahweh. His role is by nature representative. And so Mm. I think he's the visual model of what the entire nation is. That is, they are the people who bear God's name. He has Mm. stamped them with his name to claim them as his own. And therefore, Mm -hmm. he's telling them not just to to curtail their speech in a certain way, but to to shape their very lives as his ambassadors. Mm. He's saying, don't represent me in vain. Mm. You know, you bear my name, so bear it well. I think that's the right. essence of that command. So in your argument, it's not just about speech. It's not just about uh, sort of cursing with the name of the Lord. And it's also not just about flippancy, right. but it's, it's the way in which we represent Yahweh mm-hmm. with our whole yeah. lives. Would that, would that be kind of a fair articulation yes, of it? Yes, it is. Mm. You also talk about, I mean, there's, I was just reading in Jeremiah recently, which has been a little bit, I'll be honest, you know, it can be a rough book, mm-hmm. all this death, and, and especially in the midst of a global pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> but there's some bright spots as well. And there also, I've encountered passages there was, oh, this is talking about bearing God's name. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like after reading your book, reading other passages, uh, it's the lights on the dashboard sort of start to, to light yeah. up. And specifically, the book of Revelation. I'm teaching a a class on Revelation this semester. And there is the contrast between the mark of the beast and the seal that is placed upon God's people, where they bear, they bear the name of Yahweh, right? As they follow the lamb, Mm -hmm. rather than uh, the beast or the dragon. And so it's been interesting to see that that metaphor of bearing God's name mm-hmm. show up mm-hmm. not just in, you know, the Torah, the Pentateuch, but yep. across the rest of scripture as well. It's all over the place. I've, I've read through the entire canon just looking for this theme, just watching for ways that it, it, that it surfaces. And it's in almost every book of the Bible, this, hmm. co- this uh, idea that God's people bear his name and represent him among the nations. It pops up in all sorts of ways in really familiar passages, but we just aren't used to looking for this theme, so we don't hear the passages mm. in that way. Um, you mm. know, Psalm 23 talks about walking in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's mm. a really common passage. But mm-hmm. to ask God to lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, I had never stopped to think about, wait a minute, what does his name have to do with my right paths? If I'm walking mm-hmm. in the right way, how does that what does that have to do with God's name? And I think this really brings that into focus. If I bear mm-hmm. Yahweh's name, then walking in the right path publicly, conspicuously, has an impact on how Yahweh is perceived by others. And so mm. it's for the sake of his reputation that I walk in right paths. Um, it's, it's much bigger than just my personal obedience and how that relates to God's blessing in my personal life. 
it's mm-hmm. it's much bigger than that. Well, you talk about the concept of an invisible tattoo mm-hmm. in the uh, in the book, and um, and I thought, especially maybe for some evangelical parents who were against tattoos, that would be one they could finally get on board with. But uh, <laughs> yeah, here's so tell us about here's uh, the tattoo nobody can get mad about. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom can't see right. it, so. Tell us about the invisible tattoo and where can I get one and how does, how does that tie in with bearing God's name? Great question. Josh, you already have an invisible tattoo and it's the tattoo that marks you as someone who belongs to God. So Mm. I think, you know, you've already mentioned in the book of Revelation that people either have the mark of the beast or they wear the the mark of God's name on their foreheads. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happening is that in John's vision, he is finally Mm -hmm. seeing visibly what's been invisible all along we Mm -hmm. all are allegiant to someone we show Mm -hmm. we show our loyalty in various ways in the book of revelation it becomes obvious where your loyalty lies and so Mm -hmm. um one illustration that i think helps is if you think of the old-fashioned roller skating rinks when they stamped your hand on the way in and they Mm -hmm. use that ink that glows under black lights Mm-hmm. I think we've all been stamped um, in the Old Testament. It, I think it happened at Sinai initially that God stamps them with his name. But for believers in the New Testament, it happens at baptism. Paul talks mm-hmm. about at our baptism being sealed with the spirit or sealed by mm-hmm. the spirit, that the spirit seals us, that is marks us with God's name. So that that is an invisible tattoo that we wear. And then it's like on Judgment Day, we'll come under the black light and everyone mm. will get to see what was invisible and, and that stamp of God's name. Whether you want to think of it as a stamp or a tattoo or a brand, all of those images mm-hmm. work. I think that's the metaphorical background behind this command. Mm-hmm. It's drawing on this concept of those who are branded or tattooed with with the name of their owner are signifying that they belong to or work for that owner. Hmm. Hmm. How does it, uh, I've got a lot of questions that aren't even on the outline that I gave you, but how, what's the relation between this, um, this being just bearing God's name mm-hmm. and representing God to, uh, the, the image of God, the mm-hmm. Imago Dei, that we encounter in Genesis and elsewhere, because they sound similar. I mean, they representing the creator to the creation, having this sort of almost mediatorial uh, function. If we're going to talk about the priest or something like that, Uh, is there a relation between uh, bearing God's name and the Imago Dei? I think so, but they're not the same thing. So I have a really short section of the book where I talk about that. Um, Every human being, is the image of God. Every human Mm -hmm. is tasked with representing the creator God, with mediating his rule by stewarding creation. But only Mm -hmm. the covenant people bear Yahweh's name. And their their task is to mediate his blessing to all creation. So all the rest of the humans who've not yet been drawn into covenant with him, they, they receive their blessing through the covenant people. So both roles, the Mago Day and bearing God's name, both are representative roles. Both mm-hmm. are functional, but mm-hmm. they apply to different scope of humanity. So I'm okay. actually working on a book proposal right now for what I hope will be a prequel to this book that will f- flesh out what it means to be the image of God and trace 
trace through the Bible, what does it mean to be human on a broader level? Mm -hmm. Because I think that goes hand in hand with the idea of being of bearing God's name. Um, But I want to show how they're not the same thing, but how they work together. Cool. Cool. That's exciting. Because I think Jesus, clearly, Jesus bears the name of God and he bears it well, but he's also the image Mm -hmm. of the invisible God. So he draws the two threads together, showing us what does it look like to be human? What does it look like to bear God's name well? And Mm -hmm. so this this next book will start off in Genesis and then it will end sort of reflecting on Jesus and how he shows us what it means to be human. The true the true human and the true and perfect image of God. Christ. Yeah. Cool. Well, again, if you're just joining us, my guest is uh, Carmen Imes, and we're talking about her new book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. As always, Outpost Theology is proud to be sponsored by Oklahoma Wesleyan University, a Christ-centered Christian liberal arts university in the Wesleyan tradition. Just go to www.okwu.edu to learn more. That's www.okwu.edu. All right. Well, my guest today is Carmen Imes. And Carmen, let's talk about some some potential objections or questions maybe that you've received on the book. And I've heard you talk about it elsewhere. And uh, I really enjoyed hearing some of those conversations on other podcasts. If If the commandment is about bearing God's name rather than just speaking it flippantly mm-hmm. or speaking it wrongly, then as you say, it, it seems to encompass Almost everything we do, yep. right? Almost everything we do, either we're bearing God's name well or we're bearing it poorly. Mm-hmm. And so I've heard you talk about this previously, but uh, one of the critiques might be, well, if it's really the way you say it is, bearing God's name, then it's so broad, right? Yeah. As to make it almost meaningless or just not specific enough. And why do we have the other commandments if this one seems to cover everything yep. you know your whole life is bearing god's name how, how have you sort of thought through uh, a response to that question yeah it's a really good question um i the way that i count the commands this is the second commandment of the decalogue so if you're not aware of it the ten commandments have a long history of debate over how to count them and so right. most probably most protestants think of the first command as the command not to have other gods and the second command Mm -hmm. as the command not to make idols and then the third command is the one we're talking about here but i would say those first what we call the first two commands are really one thing Mm. that are enjoining the israelites to worship only yahweh and the proper way of worshiping him is is not by means of an idol or image he's already as they say on the Bible Project video, image of God, God tells them not to make images because he already has made an image, namely humanity, mm-hmm. to represent yes. his rule. So he doesn't want any statue to represent his mm-hmm. rule. So those two go together because in in ancient times, you would not have worshipped a god without there being an idol of that god. Mm-hmm. And you would not have had an idol unless it was to worship that God or to facilitate Mm -hmm. your worship. And so I think those two are one and the same. 
The reason why that's important is because that makes these first two commands an encapsulation of the covenant formula. I will be your God and you will be Mm -hmm. my people. The first command Uh, says you worship only me. The second command mm -hmm. says you belong to me, so live like it. Mm -hmm. And so those two are broad because they're like the the head or source of all the other commands. Um, Mm -hmm. You're right. They encompass everything. Between those two, we don't really need any other specific commands. Mm -hmm. But we have them because God wants to begin to help his people to think through what that would look like. Mm-hmm. If you're going to worship only me and represent me well, then you're not going to kill each other. You're not taking mm-hmm. vengeance into your own hands. You're not bearing false testimony against your neighbor. He's going to flesh out all the different ways that will, mm-hmm. that will look, how it will look in their culture. So, yeah, so it, it is broad. And that bothered me at first until I realized that the traditional way of reading this command as a command not to make false oaths or not to use God's name flippantly, then would Mm -hmm. overlap almost entirely with the command not to bear false witness against your neighbor. Like Uh what is false witness if not taking a false oath about something? I mean, they Mm. they overlap so much that you'd end up with two really hyper-specific commands in a list that's supposed to be kind of the standard of covenant faithfulness. Mm -hmm. So would it be fair to say that the first two, in, in the way you're numbering mm-hmm. them, are providing the kind of broad, almost like thesis statement yep. type thing, where here's the big idea, yep. um, uh, you know, I'm the Lord your God, and then you have the sort of what this, how it fleshes itself out in the way we yeah. live. Um, it strikes me that there is a, a, you kind of see that in ancient Near Eastern literature, not to get into the weeds too much, but like, even in let's say the two creation stories that we have in Genesis 1 mm. and 2, you get this almost like macro big picture mm. account in Genesis 1 and then fleshing it out in a more narrow micro level, yep. you know, with the garden. And it seems to be that layering like that is, there is a precedent mm. for it yeah. in, in the ancient world. Um, yeah, when it, when it clicked that, with me that it, that it echoes the covenant formula. That's when I was like, yes, this really makes sense. This really works. I am yours. You are mine. And, and it all yeah. starts from there. So there's a reason for why it's broad yep. and it was, in, it was intended to serve as kind of the heading for those other. I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about some New Testament passages. I know you're, a, um, you're an Old Testament scholar and I'm a systematic theologian. So there's, there's, not a single New Testament scholar on this uh, on this interview. All right, <laughs> but we're you safe. highlight you were safe. <laughs> this is my favorite interview yet. I get really nervous talking to this. So you highlight passages in the New Testament that might be seen as speaking um, kind of negatively about the law or about the old covenant or about uh, the you know the the Sinai uh, covenant, and because because of how much you're elevating the importance of Sinai for today, it becomes important to highlight mm-hmm. passages that maybe have been taken in the past as sort of like um, speaking more negatively of, of the old covenant. Yeah. So one of the ones you highlight is Hebrews eight thirteen, and you address it in the book and you say Hebrews eight thirteen is the biggest challenge for my contention that the new covenant is continuous with the old one. And you speak of the, you speak of uh, the new covenant more as the renewed covenant, right? 
Um, and so can you talk about that? Here's, I'll, I'll let you, I really will let you speak, but here's Hebrews 8.13. I'll read it real quick in the, in the NIV. It says this, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about that passage? Yeah, I will, I'll, I'll do so by just finishing that paragraph from my book. And for anyone who's following along, we're on page 130. It does sound like this is very negative about the old covenant or the or the Sinai covenant, because what he says, Mm -hmm. what's obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. But the author goes on to describe what exactly will disappear, namely Mm -hmm. the sacrificial system. Sacrifices Mm -hmm. brought forgiveness, but they could never cleanse guilty consciences because people kept sinning. So the Mm. first system of sacrifice instituted at Sinai was only temporary. It was good, but it was temporary. Now Mm -hmm. that Jesus has given himself once for all, the earthly temple is not necessary and sacrifices are redundant. So I say the laws Mm. were good laws. They just didn't have the power to transform hearts. The covenant was a Mm -hmm. good covenant. The administration of that covenant involving temple priests and sacrifices was just temporary. Yeah, that's good. Would you say that, would it be fair to say the problem was not with the covenant, the problem was with human beings in our fallen, in our fallen state or the Israelites fallen state. Um, and and the, 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 it's not that the covenant was somehow deficient or bad or, no, or anything like that. it just was limited in what it was able to do. It wasn't designed to transform people. Mm. Um, I, I say that with some measure of hesitance because I do talk in the book about how the wilderness is liminal space that God's calling mm-hmm. his, his people into in order to transform them. And it's true that their identity is transformed at Sinai and their sense of vocation is transformed but it doesn't transform their hearts and their heart inclination right. towards rebellion that begins in the garden. And we see it right on through the rest of the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. And liminal space, would it be fair to define that because sort of this in-between space? Yeah. Is that how you would define it? I or? would. I saw online someone talking about it just today as a place in which the veil between heaven and earth is extra thin. I think that's mm-hmm. also true of liminal space, but it is an in-between space in which mm-hmm. our identity or our role is being remade. Yeah. So any ritual includes an element of liminal space. Um, I would say right now during this COVID pandemic, the entire mm-hmm. world is in liminal space. Yes, I, I don't think we've all been in liminal space together since maybe mm-hmm. World War II. Like, yeah. you know, if you think of a, yeah. a world war, that does introduce an element of liminality. But all of us around the mm-hmm. world are in a period in which we actually can't plan well for the future because we don't know when we're right. going to be allowed to leave the house again, when yeah. we're going to be allowed to gather as a church again. Um, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a sense of uncertainty. So there's dislocation, but there's also uncertainty about how long the dislocation will last. And right. That's liminal space. Well, I mean, it strikes me that if you're going to use the wilderness as a metaphor, and I think the New Testament does mm-hmm. this, you know, I think I, I can I can see a connection between the sort of faith journey of Christians and then the faith journey of the Israelites, right? Yeah. So that we're we're in in bondage to uh, sin and death, 
we have been led out of slavery by our Redeemer. Mm -hmm. We've passed through the waters of baptism, yep. and now we're being led by the Spirit toward the, the new creation, the ultimate promised yes. land, right? Yeah. And so I've always thought of wilderness as a time of, it's a time of trial, mm -hmm. but it's also a time of preservation, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I've felt like that even in the last few weeks where the veil has seemed thin yes. as I've been forced to just to kind of cry out to God for the safety of my friends and my family mm -hmm. and to try to not lose my mind. Mm -hmm. in a <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't want to paint yeah. this season as though we're all experiencing it the same way. Some people, sure. you know, myself included, I'm enough of an introvert that I actually like this. I like, mm -hmm. I like working from home. I like having more time to read and less, fewer things on the calendar. Um, yeah. So to me, it's been refreshing and restful so far. There are other people for whom this season represents tremendous uncertainty, yeah. food insecurity, financial yeah. insecurity, housing insecurity, um, perhaps more, perhaps domestic violence, disharmony yeah. in the home. There, right. not to mention illness and the risk of illness and people right. who are immunocompromised are experiencing this differently. So I don't want it to sound like I'm saying we're all in this together. We're all doing the same yeah. thing. This is affecting yeah. us in different ways. But I think the same is true of the Israelites in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Some of them were saying, wow, we're not slaves anymore. This is great. And others yeah. were like, I kind of liked the grocery options we had back in Egypt. Can we yeah. go back? <laughs> like, are, yeah. did you just bring us out here to kill us? And so they respond yeah. in different ways to their liminal experience. Yeah. Yeah. The grumbling over food, right? Yep. How many of us, like, just before I came to film this, this to, to record this podcast, I was grumbling to my wife <laughs> over why the local Walmart said they didn't have any eggs. And I said, I, they know they have eggs in there. They just didn't, you know. <laughs> so it's very Israelite-esque yes. well, in, uh, in my grumbling. Even the run on toilet paper is interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it an interesting sociological comment or insight to see what matters most to us in a crisis? What do we stock yeah. up on? For some reason, mm -hmm. unknown to me, people did not beeline for the dark chocolate. I, that's yeah. where I would have been going. I don't do our grocery <laughs> shopping, but like, but but we we find in our times of dislocation, this sense of vulnerability shows us or exposes for us what we've been relying mm -hmm. on, what we're not willing right. to do without. And it's in those periods of dislocation that God does his most transforming work in us, I think in large part because he's showing us what's true about ourselves. Where, yeah. In what areas are we selfish? Where do we fear losing control? What is driving mm -hmm. us crazy about this crisis? And it's only when we see that about ourselves that we can begin to change. Yeah. Well, I, I'm really coming back to the New Testament mm -hmm. and how the New Testament deals with this wilderness experience in the covenant at Sinai. Another passage um, that, yeah, I think you deal with this one as well, Galatians 3. Mm -hmm. Paul says this in the, in the NIV. He says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And so one of the things I think is interesting is to watch Paul hold together this idea that the law was 
good and mm-hmm. holy and righteous. And also it brings death to us. I'm thinking of like Romans 7, he goes into this mm-hmm. as well. Because of our sinfulness, mm-hmm. right? How does that tie in with some of the stuff we've talked about already with um, the Sinai covenant and the effect that it has when it bumps up against our flesh or our yeah. sinfulness? Yeah. I've wrestled with this some um, because in some of my other podcast interviews, I've had a lot of New Testament questions. And uh, one thing I want to affirm is that the law at Sinai is a gift, that it's a good thing, mm-hmm. that it's a, that it was not doomed to failure from the beginning or it was not mm-hmm. it was not purely negative in its purpose. You know, it's just mm-hmm. to show us how sinful we are. That's all it's good for. I don't think mm-hmm. so. I think what I see at Sinai is God's gracious invitation to his people to enter into a dynamic relationship with him in which he's saying, I'm going to move in your neighborhood. I want to live Mm -hmm. among you. That's Mm -hmm. incredibly good news. He's demonstrating to them, showing them, teaching them how to live as his people by giving him these Mm -hmm. laws. And he even goes so far as to give them prescriptions for how to do the sacrifices so that they can restore their relationship mm. with him when they have sinned. So he even anticipates their sin and provides a means of restoration. So I don't think that it was just only a negative thing. But mm-hmm. I do think Paul is right that if there were no law, we wouldn't know we were sinning. So the law does show mm-hmm. us how sinful we are. Um, mm-hmm. I think it also shows us how, how to live well but we just mm-hmm. fail to do that so often. Yeah. So Paul affirms, along with Jesus, that the law is holy and righteous and good. Jesus says that he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill mm-hmm. it. You don't see him just sort of barging in and disregarding the commands from Sinai. He, he fulfills mm-hmm. it. I think what we need to understand, along with Paul, is that Christ comes as the lawgiver himself. He's Yahweh in the flesh. Mm-hmm. coming to reveal himself more fully than whatever happened at Sinai mm-hmm. and demonstrating what covenant faithfulness looks like, we now are writing, we're now rightly relating to God on the basis of Christ's faithfulness rather than our own. Mm-hmm. And so although there's grace and love at Sinai, the grace and love available in Jesus is even greater And Mm -hmm. so I think Paul doesn't want people to continue to set up shop in the shadow of Sinai, to -hmm. continue to act like Jesus never came and they need to continue on as usual. Sinai matters to us, but it doesn't matter in the same way to us as it did to the Old Testament saints. Sure. Yeah. Well, and you do a great job of pointing out that grace is there all the way through Mm -hmm. um, the Torah, Mm -hmm. the Pentateuch, the 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 books of Moses and, and um, I didn't grow up in a tradition, I guess, that really drew a sharp antithesis between law and gospel. Okay. I know some, yep. you know, some traditions do. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I went to seminary, I went to Gordon-Conwell and, and we both went to Gordon-Conwell, yeah. different campuses, yeah. but uh, I just got there and uh, I was in line for like to pay my bill or something. There's a big long line and and I, there's a young lady who just cut in front of everybody, and but not me. She got right behind me, and she cut in front of the people behind me. And I, I kind of looked at her, and I, I thought, wow, like that was a bold move. And uh, 
And she said, she looked at me and she kind of whispered, she said, isn't it so good that we're under grace and not under the law? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that was, a, that was a kind of a nifty move to justify so you cutting in front of all. now we don't need to love our neighbor because we're not under I, the law? Hmm. I was like, you know, I wouldn't try that at a Red Sox game. You might get. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I that's I think certainly a misunderstanding of what yeah. what's going on in Christ. Probably both a misunderstanding of grace uh, and a misunderstanding right. of because of the law. We're not being called to love God or love our neighbor any less than they were at Sinai. It's not like the mm. bar's been lowered. You, all it takes is to read one of Paul's letters to see that the first half talks about doctrine and you, these are the truths you need to know. And the second half talks about now here's how you should live as a result. He doesn't yeah. imagine people are going to like be like, phew, OK, now I don't have to think about obedience anymore. He talks a mm -hmm. lot about obedience. He talks a lot sure. about how the church needs to be the church. Mm -hmm. um, so he's not throwing off uh this sense of the identity and vocation of the people of God as representing him well through the way that we mm -hmm. live, that still shines through in all the New Testament letters. Yeah. No, that's good. Well, my guest again today is Carmen Imes, and we're looking at her new book, Bearing God's Name. We'll be right back for a final segment after a short break. Hey everybody, would you like to help us out here at Outpost Theology? You can do that by going to wherever you download your podcasts and giving us a nice, honest, positive review. It really helps to get the podcast out there to more folks. So just go to wherever you download your podcasts and give us a review. Thanks. All right, I'm back with Carmen Imes. And Carmen, we have a, a segment that we've done on every show so far, and it's sort of silly, but um, we'll think of this as the sort of Harry Potter segment on, <laughs> on this Old Testament episode. But if you could be haunted by, and really we just mean if you could hang out with, any person from church history, and I know you're an Old Testament scholar, but we'll still ask you the church history okay. question. So who would it be? Mm. What comes to mind is the long line of really faithful and courageous missionaries who have taken the gospel to every nook and cranny of our world. So I think of mm. Amy Carmichael, Gladys Aylward, Mary Slessor, Helen Rosevere, mm. like just to pal around with one of them yeah. uh, would be amazing. Well, and you were a missionary, was it in the Philippines? That's right. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how many... For how long, kind of when were you in the Philippines? Yeah, we were there from 2001, I think, 2002 to 2004, okay. so two and a half years. Okay. Yeah. We had one daughter when we went, uh, was pregnant with uh -huh. our second when we came home. Wow. And we were primarily involved in Muslim outreach there. Okay. So I have a, yeah. I have a huge respect for missionaries, and I spent my childhood reading their biographies and aspiring yeah. to be like them yeah that's great yeah. all right well i will let you because you're an old testament scholar we'll ask the same question of the old testament if you could be haunted by or really just hang out with one person from the old testament who would you who would you pick and why you would think i'd be sick of moses by this point 
<laughs> but I actually have so many questions I would love to ask yeah. him. There's so yeah. many parts of Exodus that there, where there's a gap in the narrative and we're just not told things. And yeah. I would just love to have an afternoon with Moses to ask him all my questions. Why didn't you circumcise your sons? Yeah. Why, why yeah. was it your wife who knew that that? And why did the whole community of Israel, when they crossed the Jordan, why did they all need to be circumcised when they got into the land? Why weren't you doing this in the wilderness? Like, that's right. one question. I, I, wa I want to know, did you grow up with Pharaoh as your brother? Like, were you known uh, to Pharaoh? Did you, yeah. did you read and write hieroglyphics? Um, I want to know, like, did you know you were a Hebrew? At what mm -hmm. point did you sort of discover your Hebrew roots? Yeah. Or, or at what point did you realize that you were not, that your Egyptian mother was not really your biological mother? I just, I have so many questions yeah. for him. I'd love to know if he was estranged from his wife. There seems to be, there's some evidence that he and Zipporah part ways. It seems uh -huh. like right after the circumcision incident in Exodus 5, she disappears until Moses gets back to Sinai. So it seems like maybe she went home and he went on to Egypt without her. And then uh -huh. Jethro brings her to Sinai. And then after that, she disappears again. And later we hear about a Cushite wife. Was Moses divorced? Right. What right. happened? You know, there's just a lot of backstory I'd love to know. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like to the... see God on the mountain? You know, which was it uh, the Charlton Heston version or the Prince of Egypt one? Which one got it more accurate? Totally. How than big the, uh, were those the... tablets? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you mentioned, speaking of kind of, you know, Moses' wives and then these female missionaries, I think you were on another podcast, I don't know if it was Esau's or uh, which one it was, but you told a story about one of your early experiences teaching mm -hmm. as a female professor and a particular male student, I think it was a male ministry student mm -hmm. who it seemed did not take too kindly to having... Um, a female professor or maybe it was, yeah. you know, your age or yep. something. And I just thought it was such a cool story and I wanted you to repeat it. I'll steal it from Esau or whomever sure, else. Sure. It was <laughs> yeah. So this was my first semester of teaching as a lab instructor for Bible study methods at Multnomah. So I was probably 20 years old, okay. maybe 19 even. Um, I was young and I got to start teaching young. And I had students who were older than I was, including this one man who was married, had a military background, and had been with YWAM. So I think he came into my class with several strikes. I had several strikes against me. I don't yeah. think he thought he needed to take this class. He should have been given transfer credit for what he did with YWAM. I think that was part of uh -huh. it. And he was also older and married and had more life experience than I did. So what, what was he going to learn from me? I could just see right. on his face when he walked in the room, this look just crossed his face like, oh, man, I am not going to get my money's worth in this class. Yeah. And I don't know how much of it was me being female, but that certainly felt like it played a role. So I mm -hmm. think for the first two or three weeks of class, he didn't even look at me. He would look down at the table the whole time. We were in this little tiny classroom where they were students were sitting at these big round tables, and he just mm. wouldn't even look up at me the whole time I was teaching. And I went to Ray Lubeck, my mentor, and said, Ray, what do I do? How do I lasso this mm -hmm. guy in? How do I win him over? Mm -hmm. He said, Carmen, don't give it another thought. You just do what you're good at. Don't worry about him. Teach to everybody else. He'll come around. And I thought, he'll come around? I just don't see it. 
but I tried to yeah. pour my emotional energy into teaching well instead of into trying to target him. And mm-hmm. within probably six weeks, he was looking up and he was starting to participate. And by the end of the semester, he had told all his friends, you got to be in Carmen's section when you take this class. It's so good. <laughs> and he even told his wife, um, his wife was not a student, but he had her come audit my class the next fall. Um, wow. Because she was allowed, like spouses could take one class for free. And so he encouraged yeah. her to use her audit to take my class because he liked it so much. So that was a really fun experience for me. I think formative in the beginning uh-huh. of my teaching to realize if I if I invest all my emotional energy in trying to pull in the person on the fringes, I might miss the rest of the class. I just need to do what God's called me to do and let let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. Well, it's, it was cool, and you, you go into a little bit of this in the book, I think. Or, there, were, there were people who believed in you at a young mm-hmm. age and saw your giftedness and your passion, and, um, and I could say that for myself as well, yeah. and it, that was hugely important, but I think especially so um, as, a, as a female Bible professor mm-hmm. in a field where we need, you know, where there's just a lot of people who look like me yeah, to be honest yeah. you know um and and so i i really appreciated that that story and wherever you told it originally and, mm-hmm. and thanks for thanks for repeating it again yeah. I, one of the there were lots of parts of the book sorry i didn't mean to cut you off what were you going to say oh no that's good i just i i agree with you that it it's so crucial that we have people speak into our lives and and call us into what call us into who we are even and just help us mm-hmm. to be comfortable in our own skin. I think yeah. for a while I felt like I needed to apologize for being me or something. Yeah. I used to start off my classes back then by saying, in case you hadn't noticed, this is a Bible class and I'm a woman. And neither of those things is going to change this semester. So <laughs> if you have a theological objection with taking a Bible class from a woman, then you should transfer yeah. to another class. You're free to do yeah. so. There's like 10 other sections you could be in. Um, yeah. So I used to to begin with that and just say that I was teaching under Ray Lubeck's authority and that you could uh-huh. just feel the angst in the room just lower as every, it's like naming the elephant in the room. Like, oh, uh-huh. they realize she's a woman and this is a Bible class. You know, or she realizes that this is weird and we haven't had this before. And so by uh-huh. naming it, it gave everybody a, a sense to just breathe a collective sigh of relief. I wasn't yeah. there to usurp anything from anybody. I was trying to follow God's calling on my life. Right. And, and we had a lot of beautiful experiences that one, one yeah. of my first students was John Collins, who's the co-creator of the Bible Project. So yeah. on the Bible Project episode, we talk about that a little bit. You never know where your students are going to end up. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my favorite parts of your book was toward the end. And it was the connection between election, mm. and we're not talking about, you know, like presidential elections, right. talking about election in the Bible, uh, and the game of blob tag, mm-hmm. blob tag. And I was not familiar with blob tag <laughs> until you explained it. So can you explain, can you explain, first of all, what blob tag is, and then how that fits in with the doctrine of election? Sure in the scriptures yeah, some people call it zombie tag i'm told but i liked blob tag okay. better i'm not a big zombie fan so <laughs> blob tag is where you're playing tag and one person you start off with one person it who's it 
and whoever they tag becomes it with them. And everybody who's been tagged continues to run around and tag everybody else until everybody's been tagged. Right. So then you've always got this like one last holdout who's like super fast and they evade everybody's grasp. But eventually they get tired and slow down and somebody can tag them. So so how does this relate to election? Well, by election, I'm referring to this theological concept that God has selected some people to be saved. And there are long debates in the history of the church over whether God selects individuals, whether he's mm-hmm. selecting corporately, he's you know corporately choosing Israel and then corporately choosing the Gentiles, whether you can lose your salvation if you're one of the elect, you know, all these, there's all these theological mm-hmm. concepts or discussions sure. around it. But for me, what, what came to life as I did this study is that election is like blob tag in that when you are tagged, you don't just sit back and say, great, isn't it cool to be picked? I'm it now. Mm-hmm. Aren't I special? No, the person mm-hmm. who's it now has a job to do. Their, their job in the game is to go around and tag as many people as possible. And for me, the, this helped me wrap my mind around or helped express to students that election has to do not just with identity, but also vocation. That mm-hmm. when God chooses us to be part of his covenant community, it's not something we could just sit back and rest in, but that it's, it's, a, it's an energizing, it, it motivates our ministry to mediate his blessing to others. So election is never about just, wow, I, I'm glad I got in. Um, yeah. It's always, oh, I've been given a responsibility. Now let me live yeah, that Yeah, a out. vocation. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love the way you put it. You said, too often we think of election as a matter of being picked to be saved, but in scripture, election is more like a game of blob tag, um, where if I'm it and I tag you, then we're both it and we run around together and try to tag as many others as we can who join hands with us and continue tagging others until everyone has been tagged. Mm-hmm. In this game, the essence of itness is to tag others. Mm-hmm. and. And I love that. I come from a Wesleyan tradition. Obviously, we have our own kind of theology of election, but I heard a, a well, the guy I did my PhD on, a guy by the name of Colin Gunton, mm-hmm. and uh, he was from a Reformed background, but he, he said in the scriptures, election is not so much God choosing one person instead of all the others, yes. but rather God choosing one person for the sake yes. of all the others. I love that. I love that. Um, and that reminded me a lot of your, your blob tag mm-hmm. uh, imagery, that mm-hmm. it's about going and um, spreading the gospel of Jesus to as many people as we can. Um, it's not so much one person instead of the others, but yeah. one person, and specifically Christ, mm-hmm. for the sake of all yes. the others. But even Abraham, um, when God chooses Abraham, it's not like, well, yes. I don't like anybody else, so I'm just going to pick you. Right. It's, I'm choosing you so that through you all nations will be blessed. Yes. And I think yeah. that the essence of the covenant vocation at Sinai is rooted in that moment with Abraham where God is saying, I'm choosing you because it's through your family that I want to set the world right again. All, yeah. that, all the stuff that's gone wrong in Genesis 1 through 11 needs a solution. The solution mm-hmm. is not to scrap everybody else and just go with these other people, but through these chosen people to restore the rest of the world to himself. I love, I love what you, I love the quote from Colin Gunton. I also read a book by Suzanne McDonald, who teaches at Calvin, Mm. 
And she talks about election as representation, being mm. being chosen in order to represent God to others. And that's when mm-hmm. I first started thinking more deeply about this this whole idea. Yeah, uh, that's great. I think specifically the Abrahamic, the calling there in Genesis 12 for all the nations of the earth. Mm-hmm. I think you see Jesus even highlighting that in his ministry, that part of his rebuke of the religious leaders specifically in Israel mm-hmm. was a failure to see their itness mm-hmm. as a calling yeah. to bless all the yes. nations. You know, and there is a transition in the New Testament. Somebody, someone listening is wondering about this. Israel at Sinai is not being called to go and tell in the way mm. we think of missionaries today going and telling the news. There, it's in the Old Testament, it's more of a come and see than a go mm. and tell. So they're they're to yeah. be a light on a hill, yeah. Um, they're to live in such a way that other people can look at them and see what Yahweh is like. But it's essentially drawing inward rather than sending them outward. And it's not until Jesus comes and says, okay, now I've shown you what it looks like. Now go and tell that he begins to send even his disciples out before the death, his death and resurrection. Um, But then, of course, after just prior to the ascension, after the resurrection, he says, you know, go into all nations. So that's where we see a transition into the way we think of missionary activity today. Yeah. It's a move from a kind of attractional model to a more of what they sometimes refer to as like a missional model. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for our last question, and I thank you so much for for joining Mm -hmm. us. I I wondered if you could teach us some Hebrew today. (laughs) Can you teach us about your favorite Hebrew word? Yes, I'd love to. My favorite Hebrew word is segala. Go ahead and say that. Segala. 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 And it is found in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where Israel has just arrived at Sinai, and God is, has appeared in lightning and thunder and billows of smoke and all this on the mm-hmm. mountain. And he gives Moses the first message to announce to the people. And the first message is not something they're supposed to do, but it's more of a a macro view of what God has in in mind for the people. And I'm going to read it from the NIV. If I can find the right page. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the word segala is the word that's been translated treasured possession, my treasured possession. And what I love about it is this is not just God thinking up the nicest thing he could think of to say to them as a means of encouragement. Mm-hmm. The word segala is actually a technical treaty term. It's used in other treaty contexts to refer to a treaty partner who's especially valued as a representative or ambassador. So mm-hmm. it, the idea is God has relationships or could have as many relationships as he wanted with all these other nations, but he's chosen Israel to be his special representative. So of any of any covenant he makes, Israel is the one who would represent him in his absence. You know, if a, if a king 
had a treaty with treaties with multiple smaller kingdoms and then had to mm-hmm. go away to battle or on a long journey for some reason and needed to put somebody in charge in his absence, he would choose his segala, someone mm. that he trusts to be loyal. And so already before we get any of the specific commands of the law, God is telling his people, you are my representatives. You're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you already get this idea of a missional vocation before, mm-hmm. before you get to the command we began talking about, that they bear his name among the nations. Um, mm-hmm. I think those two ideas go hand in hand. You are my treasured possession, then naturally you bear my name, so bear it well. Mm. Yeah, that we've that there's a privilege mm-hmm. and a, a sort of deep value that comes with being um, Yahweh's segala. Yeah. And uh, that's that's cool. Yeah. Well, Carmen, thank you so much. I hope the listeners will go out and get your book. Again, the title is Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. And that's through IVP Academic. I hope you'll go check it out. Carmen, thanks so much for joining us on Outpost Theology. Thanks for having me, Josh. This has been fun.